Hey everyone, it's Daniel here. Just wanted to get a quick plug out of the way before we get to this month's interview episode with composer Martin Davich. Uh, joining us on this interview is our composer for uh, STT's theme, Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. Uh, we were a little bit frazzled at the start of the interview. Uh, there was some scheduling conflicts, so uh, I neglected to mention at the top of the interview that Drew was joining us. Uh, amazing composer who does not only our theme, but several other uh, podcast themes that you may have heard out in the wild. Uh, and we brought him on to uh, kind of lend his expert uh, opinion and, and uh, expertise to this interview with Martin. Uh, super interesting guy, uh, both Andrew and Martin. Uh, we thank him very much for taking the time to uh, work with us on this. Uh, and we hope you all enjoy. everyone and welcome to another edition of stt interviews this time uh, we are happy to be joined by martin davich the composer for 330 out of 331 episodes of er between 1994 and 2009 uh, mr davich thank you for joining us it's my pleasure thank you for doing what you're doing so uh just to get get us started um kind of tell us a little bit about uh how you got your start as a composer and what led you to getting involved with er very good. Um, my start as a composer goes back to my childhood. I started playing piano at a very young age. Um, listen, I'm no Mozart, but I started when I was four. I would just, really, I was talented. I am talented. I'm not Mozart. But anyway, I started very young. My mom taught me till I was five. Um, I studied classical music. It got me into USC. Um, but around age 13 or so, practicing scales and classical music started to get um, quite uninteresting, and I found myself wandering and creating. Um, I'm, uh, I'm 70 years old, so at that time, uh, this music was, uh, this was in the mid-60s. Um, in terms of composition and inspiration, at that time, uh, Jimmy Webb was just starting to come onto the scene, a fabulous composer. Um, and he wrote such beautiful stuff. And that's where I li- that's that if you know me, if you know my writing, I mean, that's where I love love to live is w- with the stuff that moves you. You know, I love the human condition. That's why I think I'm a good dramatic writer. I like to get in and look at the faces and see where they breathe and and try to understand what the emotion is, and then um, let the film guide me. And anyway, he moved me so much, you know, and um, it was, it, I say this all the time, I, I teach composition now, it's that power, that thing that happens when you hear a certain musical phrase that kind of tickles those hairs in your ears, it goes directly to some emotional part of you. It communicates something that is nonverbal, that is so direct and so strong 
that always grabbed me and that's something I always wanted to work with and understand and create and um, it, it's still I say this all the time it's still that thing that happens when you when you create or hear a beautiful piece of music or an exciting piece of music or a chase piece that that makes you jump out of your ch I love that it j and that's what drives me and and the, the, the when you can look at a piece of film now and 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 have the opportunity to work with other all those other people and make this piece of film really jump alive mm -hmm. it's the greatest so for me I know I'm wandering a bit but um it was oh, that's okay it was the music it was the passion and it it I I still went from classical music piano it got me into USC um and there is when I started really studying composition and um if you if you want me to just keep blathering I'll tell you how, <laughs> how the trail went please USC studied composition they were doing stuff that was not interesting to me it was heavy contemporary classical music a lot of blips and blops and uh <laughs> you know what i'm saying that was my that was my undergraduate experience at the university of illinois as well so it wasn't interesting to me right I, you too yeah 100 and i still wrote what i wrote and they graded me on that but we were in different we were in different places um i eventually decided to drop out uh and just pursue my musical career um this was in my senior year my parents thought i was crazy and i was <laughs> um, but I, I did, and I worked as a musician for many years, um, and developing my skills. So I played, I conducted for, uh, several acts. I, uh, I did all the talk shows at that time with, I worked with Andy Williams. I worked with Anthony Newley, the Smothers Brothers, Burt Backrack, all these different artists. And it just, it just, I learned a lot. I just soaked everything in. And then they let me start conducting and playing. And, and it's just, if you're lucky and you've got talent and you get with the right people, they say, what do you got, kid? Give me more, give me more, <laughs> give me more. And uh, that, I'm, I'm, you asked the question, I'm going to keep blabbering it. <laughs> please do. Yes, please do. So I'm on tour. I'm on the road. I'm doing all this stuff. Um, someone was in the audience when I was appearing in Las Vegas from Days of Our Lives. He was a singer. And at that time on Days of Our Lives, they had a nightclub and they needed a piano player in the nightclub. So she came to me afterwards and said, yes, I love the way you play the piano. Would you be interested in playing piano on a soap opera? And I said, a soap opera? I don't think so. <laughs> said, it pays three fifty a day. I said, done. <laughs> I'm a musician. So that kind of got me off the road and then they offered me the chance to start writing for that show so there's where i learned and and soap operas are needle called needle drop at that time well that's the old technique where they would um you don't score a picture you have a bunch of music that in different categories and you basically drop it in where you need it needle drop refers to the old record where they would actually drop the needle on the record um <laughs> So, you know, at one point, you remember in soap operas, there was the organ, there was probably an organist back there just playing stuff. Like, uh, 
like oh, sort of oh, oh. type stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, then there was the needle drop stuff. My job was to create different pieces for different moods and then help them edit it into the show. So I learned, I learned that. I mean, excuse me, and that was great. Uh, and I'll tell you what, it was lucrative. I'd never put much of this on my, on my resume, <laughs> but I had music on the air five days a week, 52 weeks a year. That was a nice gig. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was a nice gig. Um, and then I had an opportunity. Days of Our Lives was kind of a, I was stuck in there. And I had an opportunity, I got asked to do this same thing for General Hospital, but General Hospital was not, um, they would let me do whatever I wanted to in addition to writing for them. Mm -hmm. It was a much better situation. Uh, so I left for them, and then uh, my agent got me an opportunity on Beverly Hills 90210, which is when I really started to uh, sweat profusely <laughs> and learn, learn all the scary details of writing for a picture <laughs> and being done on time every week um, under the gun uh, according to someone else's direction and uh, it went very well they liked my work and uh, and then ER came along now ER happened because of my dear friend James Newton Howard my best friend I've known him since we were 16 oh, wow. um, um, and he was asked to do the pilot and he spoke he called me and said Marty do you want to do this show uh, I said tell me about it he said well um, it's being produced by Steven Spielberg. It's written by Michael Crichton. I said, oh, shit. I don't... Scared the shit out of me. Pardon me. Scared the shit out of me. He said, Marty, you got to do this. I said, okay. So he did the pilot, and they gave me the first episode and told me to go right. Now, my job was... It was interesting. It was to, to not James set the palette. So initially, I had to not only honor his writing, but establish my own as well, and create this kind of thing. So I did. At that time, we're back in 1994, I think. Was that right? Yep. So the technology was very different than it is now. Um, I walked. I wrote the show. I walked in with their with a cassette deck and a half-inch tape that they sent me and they put in the tape and I pushed the button and I played every piece of music with every scene and um, I got the job. That's and amazing. It was amazing and, it, and I was on pins and needles the first year but it was so exciting because the, as you know now you're into the show I mean it just took off right and about somewhere around nine weeks it just became a a thing. I think that's about right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Getting, uh, I got letters from Steven Spielberg congratulating me and all this. It was, it was just a really exciting period of time. Um, so that's that's how I. That's a long-winded answer. <laughs> we we love the long-winded answers. Yes. They're our favorite, and that's what our listeners love too. So thank you so much. Um, and you touched on this a little bit, but what were your kind of initial impressions of how you wanted to score the show, and how did those change over the first few episodes of the series? Initially, and, and this was uh, 
I mean, it was how I wanted to score the show and how they wanted me to score the show. Um, as you know, this, when we work, we this is a work for hire. Um, my job is to do what they want. I, I look at it this way. They describe this box to me. This is this is your show, Marty, and I want it to be like this. Well, my job is to write as do as much as I can to bump them against the sides of that box and be as creative as I can within the confines of what they've set out for me. Mm -hmm. Now, I had a lot of confines because I had a palette described by James. I had instruments in that palette set up by James. I had a rhythmic kind of thing set up by James. So initially, um, I was working my, I, uh, I hired my friend Steve Percaro to write some percussion loops for me. Um, I was close with James and I got those instruments from him and I literally just started to build from his bass and then and then to uh, to put my stamp on that. But it was somewhere between um, so, somewhere between the rhythmic structure of what James laid out and the harmonic structure of where I wanted and by the harmonic I mean when you get into harmonic, you get into describing the emotional context of the show. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, that's kind of my strong suit, I think. And that's, that's, that's where I wanted to make my imprint. So I took that, I took the sounds, and then I started to build... Uh, for me, it was probably piano and strings that kind of started to really define that area. Um, and I started to build my... put my my stamp on on what was originally his bed and then and then it evolved you know but the first couple of years it was a lot about building from there and then and then it was easy to morph out of that mm -hmm. but I, uh, it was a tough show also because there's a huge sound effects palette in this thing too so it's a big you know to get this show right is it's a big mix and a big dub and a a lot of people have a lot to say <laughs> um, <laughs> you know i'm just one of those cogs in the wheel and uh frankly if it could have just been dialogue and music i would have been very happy <laughs> i'm sure drew's been there too oh oh yeah absolutely it's always it's always about navigating between the sound effects and the dialogue and like where where on this frequency spectrum you can put something that's not going to get in the way of everything else but will add something to the but you know when you're in that hospital they got beep 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 you got all this crap going on <laughs> and i'm trying to make a statement it's really tough it, is, it totally is <laughs> and is that was my percussion when you get all that all that stuff going on i would yield a little bit to that but it was uh you know what i mean it was tough to write around that stuff sometimes well, I just have to say, now that I'm thinking about it, you're right. They wouldn't wash that noise out with just putting your music straight over it. And that's something that it just kind of fades to the background when you have these really emotional pieces of music underlining whatever is going on in the scene. So whatever you did, it worked. Because as a viewer, I'm just sitting there like, this is great. Like, <laughs> I got across. I'm so happy. For me, it was always, you know, did it or I, I didn't know. I, you know, by the time it was on the air, I was into the next show, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm a little... Well, we we can confirm. <laughs> I said we can confirm 26 years later it hit. <laughs> <laughs>
Is it that long? Yeah. So I'm 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 seeing behind you uh, logic on your on your monitor behind you, and you mentioned starting out starting out uh, working on it. You were still recording to half inch tape. I'm assuming you were doing this at your your personal studio, your home studio. And how did over time, because through the '90s we went from analog to digital, and how did the how did the technology change for your work process over that time period? Yeah, two inch machine, a half inch machine. A quarter-inch machine, um, so I'd bring guys over and we recorded the two-inch, and then you know go through the process and dub it down. I'd turn in a quarter-inch tape. The music editor would splice that tape. You know, it was old school all the way down the line. Razor blades. What? Razor yeah. blades. To, wow. Especially nine hundred two one zero. That was definitely that was a little before that, but it was right in that time. And then we started to get into DAT, the DAT tapes, remember? Yeah. And we went through this strange time when technology was not great, but it kept changing and trying to find a better form of itself. And um, it was just funny. Everything kept changing, uh, and I would adapt to the next the next tape. God, it was a sequencer. And I yeah, can't yeah. remember what the hell I was using. It was a sequencer. My friend James used to James who did this used to use his... His 909, his Lynn drum machine. Oh, wow. That, that's where he wrote to for years. That's amazing. He wrote to his Lynn drum machine for years because it was a sequencer. And that, you just needed to get your material down in something. Yeah. Um, those were dangerous times because you could lose everything. <laughs> and I did. You know, I'd have a three and a half minute piece done oh. and push the wrong button. And it was gone the yeah. night before I was supposed to turn it in. Oh, no. That's, it was, the learning curve was painful yeah. with the technology. And by the way, I'm a musician, not a techie. Same, <laughs> same. And I, I have serious limitations. Um, it's like, I know how to drive my car, but if it fails, don't ask me to fix it. And I've got all this, all this stuff around here, all these computers and, Shit, I don't know how to fix any of it. <laughs> yeah, I have to call a guy. <laughs> call a guy. Um, but I, I've learned, I've learned, I have so many workarounds that I can get my job done no matter what. Um, but um, it, it was tough. Um, and I was a Cubase guy for many, 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 many years. I like Cubase. Um, I, just, I just recently tried... Um, Pro Tools, and that got a little kludgy, so I finally went over to Logic just to try it, and I like Logic a lot. It's very simple. Yep. For me, I want as little between me and the production of my music as possible. I don't want to have to think too much about the technology in front of me. Um, I'm 100% with you on that. Like, I just want a transparent experience. I don't want to have to think about gear or anything. I just want to turn it on and go. And, and for <laughs> me, uh, I don't know about you also, I'm a very... It's a very intuitive process for me, um, and if something gets in the way of that, I might—it's gone. You know what I mean? Uh, and when I write, I don't know if now is the time to say this, but if I put up a scene, and I sit down to write, uh, let's say it's an emotional scene, maybe I'll just put up a piano, and I—I I won't overthink it. In fact, I won't think at all. I'll press record, and I'll go, and I'll respond to the picture, and I'll. And um, somewhere in there, I'm going to make a move that I didn't plan on making, 
that's going to be intuitive and wonderful. And it might be the key to the whole piece. But what I do is I don't overthink it. I let it come. The, the film is, is my master. So I, I, just, I just let myself go. And it must be, I've done it for so long, it must be some sort of, I don't know what. <laughs> not a trance, I'm not saying that at all. But it's just a, a receptive spot I get into when I press it, and I press play, and I just go. It's a flow. You know what I mean? And, and, um, and then that's my key. And once I, once I find the key to the thing, once I find that emotional spot or that thing that, that tells me I'm at the heart of this scene, then I can go and, and then I can develop my piece from there. So that's kind of how I work. So, and you, you've kind of touched on this a little bit earlier too, um, that you were sort of building off the foundation that uh, James built for the pilot. And of course, he not only did the pilot, but also the theme song as well. And a lot of those, a lot of those interstitial pieces that you did episode to episode kind of were built off of elements of that theme song. So how much did you find yourself drawing from his uh, theme song and the work he did in the pilot when you were working on each individual episode? The theme, not so much. Again, it was more the rhythmic components. Now, there were certain, though, like there was a theme he wrote, and I can't remember right now, um, almost. I wish I had my piano up. I'd play it for you. But um, he had a theme for um, Carolyn Doug. He had gotcha. a theme for that, which stayed throughout, which stayed throughout the entire show. Um, was it kind of high uh, piano, simple little? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It just worked, and it worked from the beginning. And those little those little signatures are really good. Um, as John Wells told me, you know, there's got to be something. You know, do what you do, write what you write. But when they tune, people tune into the show every week. Something about your music has to let them know they're home. They're watching the show. So. There has to be certain signature for me. Some of it was my just my emotional tone. Some of it was my instrumentation. And some of it was some of those themes, some of the themes that James wrote, some of the themes that I wrote. He also had another theme that I loved, which I just used kind of for the ER family, I called it. And it just, there were certain pieces that were so identifiable with the show and the heart of the matter that um yeah i used i used throughout the show um some of his and some of mine and so and and eventually some of ours because his pieces morphed into our pieces <laughs> so um it became james newton howard and martin davich pieces not just james newton howard and that's what it was supposed to be uh so this was the best thing i ever worked on because as you know the talent all the way through. I mean, from the writers and the producers and the actors and the director. It was a great show. Mm -hmm. it was, Outstanding. There was uh, not that many like that. Um, and you mentioned talent. So we were curious, it, how often, if ever, did you get to interact with the cast? And did that inform your work on scoring any episodes? Um, I, you know, there were parties, there was this, there was that. I got a chance to interact with the cast. It was the question of who in the cast would interact with me. <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell you, um, 
and not that they're snobs. It's just, you know what I mean? Everybody's in a different world. However, um, I can say that Anthony Edwards was a doll and we were very friendly. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm buddies with Noah Wiley. We're talking about maybe working on a project together. A couple of the other actors were always very, I, uh, names are skipping me, leaving me right now, but um, Laura Innes, fabulous, always very friendly. Um, she seems like such a pro. Really cool. I mean, she can do anything, direct, act, right? Um, Clooney was very funny. Um, not interested really in uh, getting to be friends, but very friendly. And that was the way with most of the guys. So that was, it was cool. Everybody loved that show. So we were always happy to be around each other because we were excited. We were knew we were doing mm -hmm. a great thing. And it was always kind of a celebration at Christmas or whenever we had a party because we were do we were making good TV. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was, it was always good. It was always good. So switching gears a little bit, how how would you say your process was affected or altered uh, during production, or how did it have to be altered during production for the live episode that they did in season four? Crazy. So the live episode, um, I I got my friend Steve Percaro. I don't know if you know who Steve Percaro is. He uh, is one of the great musicians around. Uh, he's in Toto. He was in Toto. Um, he was, uh, anyway, he's a brilliant musician. Um, so it was me and Steve and my engineer. I pre-wrote everything. And, um, what I did was, it was, it was crazy because it was live, <laughs> right? So they would, they would stray from the, I have a script in front of me. They would stray from the script. Or they'd miss a line. I'd have to be watching and say, oh, 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 okay. And I'd start. <laughs> so what I'd do, I'd program something with some movement, maybe if it needed it. Mm -hmm. If it was a piece that needed some movement, I'd program the movement so I could, boom, we're going. And then, and then I would, Steve and I would add the piano or the strings or whatever it was over the movement so that, I, so that we were set up to play as long as we needed to because a minute scene could wind up to be a minute and a half scene or a 45 second scene depending on the pace of the actors during the live show right. so there was no there was no setting up anything beforehand you had to just be prepared to uh, find a way to write it end it fix it do it live uh, and it was fantastic and it was so exciting and so scary. So, you know, I'm a good enough musician, you know, and Steve was right there next to me. So I'd say, uh oh, they're cutting it short, follow me. And I'd, I'd end it and whatever, and push the button. And it was that, it was seat of your pants, um, but it worked great. And um, it was very exciting. I mean, I'm in the music booth and Steven Spielberg walks in. I mean, and uh, I was a much younger, <laughs> <laughs> it was so exciting. I was, my mind was blown. And we had, did two live shows that night, and it was really fun. Yeah, that's intense. I always forget they aired for both time slots for that. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. It's just like hold on to your butts until the commercial break. <laughs> <laughs> 
do or die and live for millions of people. And uh, yeah, really fun. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. That's super cool. So the the on a on a sh- not many shows get to run fifteen seasons. Like it's it's a it's quite a, a feather in the cap of ER. Uh, and as composers, we often get called upon to like, you know, fix things or keep the tension up or or keep the dramatic. You know, how did you have to sort of vary your approach to keeping tension going on a show that's like eighty percent tension uh, most of the time? <laughs> I, uh, technology. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, new sounds. Uh, I, I tried to keep it fresh. Uh, it took a while. Um, um, but as I got more in my groove, I kept looking for different ways to tell the same joke over and over and over again. <laughs> Which, and, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And you're also dealing with producers who loved what they heard five years ago and wanted to hear it again. And and you also, as you know, that you do a temp score. I was about to ask if there was temp love. Score. You know what a temp score is? A temp score. For those who don't know, when you, when when I when I get a show to look at, I get the last best edit they've got. By the way, they may still be editing when they give me a show, which means. I could write a cue and they would call up and say, yeah, that's great, but we just changed that scene. Sorry, you're going to have to fix it again. Uh, that goes on all the time. And then we'll talk about music editors in a minute who, who save your ass on the stage. <laughs> but anyway, I always, I tended to refuse to reuse my music. And it was a, a silly point of pride. And eventually I would, I would kind of rework it if they really wanted something. Uh, but, um, so if I would hear something old, I would try to refresh it. And, and, um, but the problem was, how do I reinvent those? And they wanted, I I was under orders. The trauma cues had to be, (laughs) you know what I mean? It had to be driving and, and there's only so many ways to put that motor in that car, you know? Uh. I was personally one of my favorite things you did, and I thought it was a very clever. I think it came out of out of James's uh, uh, main title, but is that high kind of cloud of floaty that would just hang there and create energy, and it was out of the way of all the dialogue and all the special effects, and it just floated there and kept this tension going. I thought that was a really elegant solution, one of my favorites of yours from the show. As I got into it more, I would like to have really messed with the dub a little bit more and done more like strong low tension and this tension and let all the sound effects come in and be the be the metallic stuff in the middle i mean we could have done more with it but it's a it wasn't my show it wasn't mine to direct it wasn't i didn't have that kind of control and when i walked into a dub there was a huge sound effects palette every week which I had to yield to because they wanted a big noisy show like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I mean? I, I had certain limitations. Um, I had this great, yeah, listen, it was great. I had this great opportunity to write all this music and, uh, and I'm 
forever great. It opened up the world for me. So you know, it was it was it was great, and I loved everybody I worked with. And I'm still close with John Wells. See him all the time. Chris Chulak. Um, I, I made some lifelong friends on that show. You know, we were we were in the we were in the trenches together <laughs> for 15 years. It, it can't you can't help but be close after that. So you mentioned a little bit with the live episode that that was a bit of a fly-by-your-seat-of-pants performance. Was there any other episodes that were particularly challenging to score? Oh, sure. But I can tell you the episode where Sherry Stringfield or Fellow? Mm -hmm. Field. Field. Sherry left. They kept that a secret. And from me. I didn't get that last scene until the night before it aired. And that was a three and a half minute scene. And it was a critical scene. So, and they didn't want anybody to know about it. That was a big secret. So that was a challenge. And yeah. it was a critical scene. So I had that, I got that that night and I had to write it and get it ready and get it produced and mastered and over to them. And they had to dub it in the show and get it on the air Thursday night. And I got it Wednesday. Uh, stuff like that. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's, I think, uh, the behind the scenes, that's actually, I think, our next episode that we're supposed to cover is that episode. I, I think it, I think it's one or two from now. Yeah. Because so. she just didn't, she, the, she just um, gave, like, gave the first inclination that she might be leaving, so. Yep. Yeah. So, we're coming up on it real soon. Yeah, so that was, uh, that was a challenge. The other one that I remember sweating bullets was the very last episode where I poured my heart and soul into it and I wrote I wrote a gorgeous but somewhat sentimental episode and John said that's nice but it's too sentimental. <laughs> we had to write the whole f- freaking thing over again. Um, but it turned out great. And oh, that by the way is what I love and only partly hate about collaborations. Um, <laughs> But it's always it you grow and it, it's it's greater than you imagine. If you're with a great collaboration, I can only imagine what I can imagine. I, my limitations are my limitations. So when someone else comes and says, "Yeah, but there's all this over here," wow, the world gets bigger. So for me, as much as I pour my heart and soul into something, and when I turn it in. I don't turn it in until I'm convinced that this is the most beautiful thing I can give you. When somebody says that's not great, it always hurts. But then, then okay, what are you going to tell me? And then I got to go fall in love with that. And usually when I do, there's something greater that I haven't imagined. And that, that is what I do love about the collaborative process. Uh, so I, I rewrote the last episode, but I love that last episode. And the other thing that was great was every once in a while they'd give me a budget for an orchestra. And that last episode we had an orchestra and I thought the score came out pretty cool. Awesome. You just headed off my next question. Uh, how many times did you uh, have the ability to, to do an orchestral session? Was it once a season or it had to be a quote, very special episode? Or? It was a quote, very special episode. And um, trying to remember all the, well, another great one. The whole bit when when uh, Dr. Green died and all oh, that yeah. leading up to it. But that 
that last episode when, when he did die and the funeral and all that was a beautiful episode and um, some of my some of my favorite pieces for the show were in that episode um, and that that was that was uh, that one I loved I um, I think we did for that episode I think I just did cellos and violas and uh, a couple of violins I wanted this really deep rich um, but it was Anytime they did that for me, it was it was a give me a box of candy. I was oh, absolutely, <laughs> so lucky, so lucky, and uh, they were very generous. And um, I must admit, on that show, and they also produced Third Watch, which I I wrote for them as well. And the same thing on that show, they would say, "Here you go, see at the dub." You know what I mean? They they would let me <laughs> give me that freedom to go, just write write my ass off with that orchestra. So uh, I was a lucky boy. That's awesome. That's so <laughs> yeah. great. What projects are you currently working on and how can fans of the show keep up with your work outside of ER? Well, guys, I wish I had something to tell you on that front. <laughs> I'm, I'm just writing at this point in time. I'm not on, I'm not on a project. Um, there are a few discussions, but that's about it. That's all I've got right now is talk. So uh, one final question, and this is one that we've kind of made a habit out of asking everyone we've talked to from the show. Uh, what do you feel that it's important for fans of ER to know about the show from your unique perspective? What would maybe something that they would not get from just watching the show? What do you think it's important for them to know? Um, can you go on a little bit more? Can you give me a little? Well, when you think back on, uh, you know, your experience working on the show, that you know you you obviously saw the show from a very different perspective and a very different angle than we did just sitting at home on our couches watching it so if you had the opportunity to to share with the fans of the show kind of that unique perspective and what that meant to you what would that sound like well for me working on the show honestly was the best musical experience uh, as a composer that i've ever had um one, because of the company I was keeping. Mm -hmm. um, I was always treated with great respect and I always had beautiful stuff to work on. Um, and I loved, John Wells made the big calls on the back. He was all, he's the man, right? Mm -hmm. He set the tone. Speaking of setting the tone. <laughs> there <we> go. <laughs> it takes me back to that scene at the basketball court when Anthony Edwards says, you set the tone. I don't know if yep. he's got this or not. Yep. Yes, definitely. That's stuck in my head. And when you said, when I saw that, I didn't have to look it up. I knew exactly where that came from. I had yes. hoped. <laughs> but that was it. But John Wells set the tone. And not to over-sentimentalize. Um, let the actors act. Let the dialogue be dialogue. And don't, don't, play the emotion at the risk of overtaking the actor's emotion. So mine was a supportive position. And you'll see if I did it right, I'll be there. And there was certain scenes where I'm, um, there's one scene you'll get to later on where, where um, which I love and it's on, where uh, Dr. Green is finally leaving the hospital and he tells everybody he's leaving you might remember this scene, and it's about a three, four, five-minute piece, and and I take it from the time he's 
he's um, ta he's examining this last little girl, and and, and she and um, I start with just this little twinkle, and um, he's got this twinkle in his eye, and she's got this twinkle in her eye, and it's just I've forgotten what he says, but it's magical, and and he says, you know what, you're my last patient. And nobody knows what he's talking about. They think it's the last patient of the day. But I'm playing his secret. And, and, and I'm kind of keeping it under wraps. And I play things as they come along. And there's dialogue going on. And I hint at this. And he looks at, he looks at Sherry. And I play a little something. And he looks at somebody else. And I play a little. And then when, when that stops, I hit the theme, you know. And I hit the melody. And then he gets outside, and I bring it back again. It, it's 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 that. It's it's the film directs me, and um, I just try to pick up on what's in there. I I try to um, empathize with with the characters and the emotion, and I try to put that empathy into a musical form, and then and then I look for the moment when I can. <laughs> I was gonna say, who's cutting onions uh, in here? And uh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. It satisfies me so much to be able to do this sort of thing. I just can't tell you. It's my favorite thing to do. I come. I'm not working now. I don't have a show. I write every day. I'm working. I'll, I put an album out last year. Um, um, he said, uh, promoting himself. Um, no, please do. No, we love it. Uh, it's on. It's on. You can find it anywhere. It's called the conversation. But um, and I'm working on my next album, and I'm trying to get uh, films, and I, I'm still doing what I do, and I come here and write every day, and uh, you know whether it's whether it's for me, which it pretty, probably is pretty much at this point in time, <laughs> or if if I'm bidding on a project, it's just what I love to do, and it's my happy place. And when I come here, I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just wrapped up in my music. And that's, you know what? That's what I love to do. And hopefully it will keep my brain facile for a few more years. And uh, <laughs> that's it, man. This is, this is, this is my happy place.